This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Setups with no payoffs. Yellowstone's Zone of Death. Chinese police stations in Canada. And Mothman. totally take you down in God's Forge. No way! My Apocalypse Titan is too powerful for your puny Crystal Phoenix. What you don't know is that my Great House's special ability is to always beat you! Ha ha! Oh, wait. You win. That was seriously fast. Yep, that's because of the simultaneous play in God's Forge. And also because of my Great House's special power. Isn't that from the new expansion for God's Forge? Yep, and you can get yours, too, on Kickstarter on November 8th. God's Forge 2nd Edition, plus two new expansions, Return of the Dragon Gods... And Twilight of the Great Houses. You are a great mage battling for the last reservoir of the magic element Ethereum. Craft creations and cast spells to defeat your rivals, leaving you as Master of the God's Forge. With quick and fun simultaneous play. Starts on Kickstarter from November 8th. Ends on Kickstarter December 8th. Learn more at atlas-games.com. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the gun on the mantelpiece, and Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into a foreshadowed episode of The Gaming Hut, because role-playing, as Robin has pointed out, to me at least, in the show notes, is a narrative medium with more setup than payoff. We get lots of buildup. We get lots of directions we might go. We only take one of them. Those promising threads go away. The dungeons are littered with guns on mantelpieces that never go off. How does that work? Why does that work? Is that a good thing? Do we embrace it? Do we run from it? What's the story, Robin? What were your thoughts in Ray, and be careful around the mantelpiece, as I mentioned. Yes, yeah, so there's a gun right there. I, Lots of guns there. I hope it doesn't go off. So I was thinking the other day while I was working on uh, one of the adventures for Casilda's uh, Song, which is the great big epic mega campaign for the Yellow King role-playing game, where I am now halfway through the first draft of the first two books written. And as I'm going through there, doing the sort of gumshoe thing, and, you know, the adventure is in this particular place, Look up a bunch of cool facts about that place. Write them all down as things that are available to you with your investigative abilities. But some of them are directly relevant to the storyline. Others are not. And if you work in a more traditional passive narrative form, generally speaking, it is considered good form not to include anything that doesn't wind up meaning anything. And the extent of that demand varies from form to form. Generally, the shorter the format, the less you are allowed to get away with little discursions that don't pay off. Mm -hmm. So a short story, everything in the short story has to serve the needs of the short story. A movie, you don't want to see a lot of scenes that don't really go anywhere. A bunch of, certainly exposition always has to pay off or it shouldn't be there. Some novelists are discursive, but generally not in the genre realm. 
An exception, I guess, there is the mystery where there are supposed to be things that don't actually pay off. They're, they're you know, the classic red herring. And I guess the further on down the line you go, there are television series where a show like Sons of Anarchy used to do where they would pay off everything set up in a season. You go, wow, none of that was extraneous in this motorcycle gang soap opera. A lot of other shows. But, but you say that about Sons of Anarchy because it's so very unusual. Yes. In the modern era of television series where... Ample things never pay off. You know, where the opposite of that is like Deadwood, where it's mm -hmm. all set up and, and no payoff. <laughs> and no payoff. Yeah. So it's not, you know, universally the case that every plot is tightly plotted in every bit of passive entertainment you consume. But in general, you know, if you are explaining the details of this cathedral early on, they're going to supposed to matter later on. Yeah. And as you point out, Ken... In role-playing, it's kind of like improv, right? That often, you know, there'll be stuff where the people doing an improv scene are sort of flailing around and they wait until they finally hone in on, you know, where they're headed. And so stuff that they were messing around with at the beginning of the sketch doesn't pay off. But role-playing does that in long form. You know, there's tons of stuff that you will put out there because you're setting up basically a buffet of things for the characters to interact with. And uh, the whole point is if the players feel that they only had one item at the, at the buffet, no matter how much they like ham, yeah. <laughs> they don't want just ham. They want different things. And it may well be that a thing that you throw out there just as an aside, they get so super interested in that, that it changes the direction of the adventure and you go uh, way far away from your plans or even from a published scenario. But inevitably could that ever happen robin it yeah. seems far-fetched to me that that would ever happen with trained and experienced role players right so i think this is something that has always happened in role playing but we don't really think about very much uh, in terms of what it means when you have a story where there's a bunch of stuff that just doesn't turn out to matter and a lot of the times you don't even remember this stuff that doesn't matter because it didn't turn out to be relevant. Yeah. The degree to which players expect or are even invested in total payoff in a sons of anarchy sense. And again, maybe they've been trained by flabby botchkawise drama to not actually expect payoffs or to expect at most a single scene payoff for one character that doesn't actually feed into any larger part of the story. But in RPGs, I find that payoffs are, almost always in at my table anyway, treated with sort of a gratified surprise when they happen, as opposed to, well, it's about time that showed back up. And sometimes, and this may just be that they're gratifyingly surprised that I got around to paying it off, which I'm willing to discuss this, <laughs> You're willing to copy. but I, I do think that because it is so much, as you say, a buffet, a smorgasbord that once you've gone to the buffet and you've taken your, you know, your beef shank and you've gone away and you've enjoyed your beef shank and your potatoes and whatever, at no point are you thinking, man, I wonder what was up with that ham. You don't. You're consuming it differently. And you're and in many cases, because you're driving the story, it's like if you went to a library and you checked out one book, you're not consumed with frustration about how the, all the other books came out in, in a, a large way. The participatory quality of role playing is about choice and about constant choice from all these things. So payoff, like I say, is more of a stunt or a bonus for other side trails or other pre-introduced things. I'm finishing up what we're calling season four of my fall of Delta green campaign. And I'm trying to bring as many elements from previous adventures back in 
as a sort of, you know, season finale, you know, sort of a Sons of Anarchy type moment. And the players are all like, you'd think fireworks were going off. Ooh, look at that. That's from, you know, that one episode. And they're, and they're very. It's so rare that people get really super excited when you do it. Yeah. And I don't say that, you know, you have to do it. I'm saying that it, it can be enjoyable. But I also, I think my implication is to agree with you that players don't really expect it. And we sort of just in the same way that, you know, we agree that everyone in the movie is gorgeous, even if their character is supposed to be, you know, unattractive. Oh, no, look at that. Natalie Portman's in glasses. I guess no one likes her. <laughs> yeah, you know? a slight smudge. Yeah. Oh, cheek. goodness. Yeah, they really glammed up Charlize Theron. How did that happen? You've got a, uh, a, a sort of an agreement that you ignore the film parts of film to enjoy the story and the art of the film. In the same way, we agree to not you know, pay too much attention, not just to the clattering dice, which are exodramatic, if you will, but to not pay attention to the other things that you've deselected out of your drama. Right. And I think part of this also is that players also introduce narrative material, and some of this will be picked up by everybody else, and some of it won't. And so you might be frustrated at the end of a session if, you know, no one decided to follow up on the mysterious stranger I talked about But you're not thinking, oh, that mysterious stranger plot element was introduced and nobody picked it up. You know what happened. Mm -hmm. It's not that an expectation of narrative concision was created and then defied. That's part of the deal. And Mm -hmm. so similarly, you will kind of uh, imagine a whole bunch of outcomes that don't occur when you're planning. And the whole group will get together and think of stuff that might happen. Or you will develop theories about what's going to happen that turn out to be total nonsense. And, you know, you uh, realize in retrospect that your character was wrong. And even though you're maybe playing a super genius, nobody's going to go, that was really out of character for Batman to think that this was the Riddler behind all of this when it turned out to be the Penguin. Because that's just, again, all part of the assumption of feeling your way through the narrative. And I think there's sort of a, a sense that, Certain stuff that happens on stage doesn't really make the final cut if it was, Mm -hmm. you know, then adapted into uh, something else. And there's also, I think, the fact that players enjoy discursion. They are discursive themselves. Something Mm -hmm. you may have noticed as a GM that players will sometimes wander off topic and they're perfectly happy. And I think looking for things like here's, you know, this is the only time we're going to be in this region of France. Give me some facts about this region of France and let me learn some stuff about it. You know, sort of James Michener style, you know, mm-hmm. he's yeah. ding him as being a master of unnecessary exposition. But if people are enjoying it in the moment, in a role-playing context, the fact that all of these facts about this place don't actually factor into the story, they do factor into the sense of being there in the moment. And I, I guess what we're groping toward is the idea that what's happening in the moment is much more important than a sense of narrative cohesion afterwards, especially since you'll probably impose that cohesion on it anyway when you tell somebody else about it if you do and i guess the james michener equivalent in film is the sort of uh, hangout movie where we're just taking a tour through los angeles in the 70s we're not really about these characters although we're following them and that sort of new wave of film construction where it's about the felt moment in time or the moment in space if you're got a, a pretty pretty backdrop but it's it's not all in service to a narrative we're not hitchcock we're not banging things out point by point by point and that i think is you know where a lot of the 
you know, energy in role playing comes from is that sort of let's screw around and see what happens. And you can, of course, see elements of that. I mean, there's discursion in virtually all mystery stories. As you say, the red herring, the part where the detective comes up with a fake answer that turns out, oh, it's the wrong answer. And you're holding the book. You know, it's only halfway through. It can't be the real answer. It's like the first guy accused in Law and Order episode. You know, he's just there to get you to commercial. He's not the actual bad guy. Uh, yeah, Law and Order is, a, is another interesting counterexample of it's not being failing to pay things off by accident or by, you know, uh, sloppiness the way some other things are. Its whole point is, or at least early on when Law and Order, I, I think Law and Order, which I stopped watching the various versions of years ago, I think it strayed from its original purity, but like so many things, like so many things. But when it was first on the air, the whole point was, is it, it was kind of a contingent narrative where, you know, random stuff would happen and it would be like a real investigation with a lot of blind alleys and stuff. Mm -hmm. and if the second half agreed with the first half, something had gone wrong. The whole point of law and order was to be twisty and turny and, uh, and surprising. And I think really when you're writing a scenario, the risk is not that people will complain that you introduced a really interesting fact that then didn't, get paid off in the ending, but that you introduced a fact that was so interesting that the players decided that that's what the adventure was supposed to be about. And then you, the GM, had to scramble to improvise to make this aside a, a central part of the storyline. It's as if the menu in a James Bond or Nero Wolf story suddenly became the point of the novel, right? That, you know, you know, when Bond is, is eating at some restaurant in, you know, Monte Carlo, we're just getting the menu as part of what you said, you know, the sort of travelogue missionary quality of it to make us feel like we're there and fancy like James Bond. But that's not the story any more than Nero Wolf's, you know, what he has for dinner before the mystery is the story. But you could imagine a version of that in which, you know, the players just seize on. Why is he having artichokes? I thought it was November. Aren't artichokes out of season? What's going on? And then off you go into a an entirely wild ideally but probably tiresome side story until you can get back around to oh right yes there's international spies murdering people that sort of right. point speaking of which there's an international spy coming through the window of the gaming hut and i'm going to take the gun off the uh, mantle and just brandish it at them and and take them into custody because this is this is not a, a killer podcast where we just shoot people down in the middle of it but i think we've now that we've paid off the thing that was set up at the beginning we can move on to another segment and during this commercial we'll finish processing of the person. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesize secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press.
the compass rose, the mercator projection, the cool little sea serpent in the corner tell us that we're once more in the cartography hut, the hut where we uh, map our dreams and also places in geographical locations, because uh, this time around, we're going to look at a spot where the map, a very specific area on a map, intersects with a loophole in uh, American law that has already been exploited in a whole bunch of different fictional contexts. So I guess when we get to the end of explaining it, we'll have to come up with, with something new that hasn't been done yet. And this is at the behest of a beloved Patreon backer, Yuri Horneman, who wants to know about Yellowstone's Zone of Death, which is a cool name that when you get down to has anything cool ever happened there or any death other than the amount of death that would normally happen in a 50 square mile area of wilderness. Well, let's not talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the zone of death. So the United States District Court of Wyoming has jurisdiction over all of Yellowstone Park because it's a national park. So it's under federal jurisdictions. Right. And that includes like little small bits of it that cross borders into Idaho and Montana. So there's little bits of Yellowstone that are not in Wyoming. And because it is a national park, only a federal court can have jurisdiction over it. However, the Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says that you can only be tried by a jury from the district and state where the crime was committed. And not only do you have to gather a jury from there, but the trial has to take place there. But in this little tiny chunk of the map we're looking at here in the chronography hut, there's no courthouse and no people. <laughs> it's in Idaho. It's a little tiny bit of Idaho that's in Yellowstone Park. And so... Theoretically, according to a Michigan State law professor named uh, Brian Kelt, who first uh, very trepidatiously revealed this in 2005 because he was genuinely worried that people would, would exploit this. But in theory, you could just murder up a storm in this tiny chunk of Yellowstone Park and you would just be able to, you know, go, uh, ha ha, because there's no prospect whatsoever of your being tried in a courthouse in Idaho in that spot. And so he was so concerned that he was reluctant to publish this paper. Then he lobbied Congress to close this loophole. And somehow, Ken, Congress hasn't gotten around to it. Hasn't moved on They that. have other concerns other than yeah. theoretical murders that might take place on this spot. Yeah, I, I feel, first of all, this is an indictment of the good people of Idaho and to a lesser extent, Wyoming and Montana for not immediately turning this into a ground to have duels. I feel like th there should just be gunfights right. constantly happening that you, you got beef with someone in Idaho. You say, we're going to go to the zone of death. We're going to throw down. It'll be like cowboy times. It'll be wonderful. But nope, even people with beef in Idaho, they shoot it out in a, a perfectly jurisdicted part of Idaho. And what's even the point? Right. So I'm, I'm looking at you, the West, and I'm looking at you in a disappointed face. That's right. what's happening. Well, and, of course, the reason people fire guns at anger at each other these days, they don't pre-plan it to that extent. We have to bring dueling back. And, and I guess, you know, if it was your mission mm -hmm. to encourage crime in this area, the zone of death is overstating it, right? No one wants to go to a place where they might be the, the one who gets dead. Right, yeah. That, well, I mean, that's the point of a duel. Yeah. That's what makes it better than just driving by a, a, a building and shooting out the windows like some sort of Capone type. Yeah. If, if it was the zone of hallucinogens and it was yeah. promoted as a place where you could go and get high without being busted. Which I guess it also is. Which it also is. But good old Brian called overstated the case. So if mm -hmm. your goal was to turn this into a 
a nexus of crime. They, they could be having much colder Burning Man up there. Yeah. Now, there are probably also ways that the... I, I guess that the park rangers can shoo you off, but they can't yeah. charge you right. for, for having reveled. So at any rate, shortly after this came out in 2005, in 2007, surely purely out of public spiritedness and not to exploit what is a killer plot hook that you want to be the first one to get to, an author named C.J. Box made this the linchpin of his novel Free Fire, and that was also used as an argument in Congress. They, I guess they tried to get congressmen to care by distributing a thriller novel. Didn't make much difference. There's a 2016 mockumentary called Population Zero that is about that. But most notably, the show Yellowstone, they treat that as, you know, the big body dumping ground. So in Yellowstone, there's a giant body count, I guess, associated with, you know, that's where they go and kill people or dump them or, or something. Mm-hmm. So it, in real life, the closest this has come to any sort of thing is that someone illegally shot an elk in the zone of death. So if you're not even in the real zone of death, they shot it in the Montana part of Yellowstone. So it's the zone of inconvenience, (laughs) the zone of inconvenience, which uh, I believe is most of Montana and got the guy to plead down. If he didn't use the whole zone of death business in his defense, but still nothing much has really happened there. And so since I think sort of in the thriller crime area, this has been abundantly furrowed. It, it is our mission here in the cartography hut to figure out a way uh, using our additional powers of, of weirdness where the zone of death could fall into something. So can we have at our disposal, you know, aliens and shoggoths and vampires? So uh, what are they going to do with the zone of death? Well, I mean, to begin with, I think we have the possibility of magic happening in the zone of death because what does magic need? It needs a boundary, right? I mean, you've got Hecate doing her magic at the crossroads. Your haunted houses are etheric windows between life and death. Well, what this whole 50 square mile area is in legal, uh, the most important kind of limbo, right? So I would say this is also going to be a zone of ghosts and necromancy. I would say it's going to be a zone where you can do your reality bending magics more easily because... And I I assume that similar areas, like there's a little stretch between Egypt and Sudan that is so desolate and miserable that Sudan keeps saying, no, that's really Egypt. And Egypt says, I think that looks like Sudan to me. (laughs) A rare border zone where each wants the other person to take it. And there's a similar little diamondy, triangly spot between, I think, Saudi Arabia and Iraq that no one has ever wanted bad enough to fight over. So there's little zones like this scattered around the world. So you can have a a, a real globetrotting campaign for neutral zones and and maybe that's you know briefly it also works in in battlefields where uh sovereignty is contested but it's best in a you know long standing the longer the confusion has happened the bigger the the charge builds right. up because e- even on a battlefield rules pertain right there's yeah. a geneva convention mm-hmm. now these rules are often flouted and it's difficult to always successfully enforce them but mm-hmm. there are still rules but these right. yeah. places are places where the the normal rules are suspended. Exactly. And so that's their geomantic power is that you can manipulate reality from there. Now, the fact that it's called the zone of death and not the zone of hallucinogens means that there's a different tier of deities that you could especially well propitiate there. So, for example, you can go to these places and this is where you would petition Hades or Nergal and, uh, you know, draw on their power and, uh, 
as you suggested, it's a place probably where you can reanimate the dead. You know, mm -hmm. what is the, the biggest rule is that the, the dead stay dead. So this would be a great place to do that. Uh, somewhere where you need the laws of physics to uh, change. So it could be also a, uh, you know, if you don't want to go the full magic route, or at least not full sorcery, you could say, well, this is where weird science happens. Mm -hmm. This is where UFOs show up and, yeah. and sprung out of. And so you could have a scenario where sort of as a side quest, that's where you have to go to resurrect the player character who you want to be able to, you know, come back from the dead. Or conversely, you can discover that your sorcerer's enemies are headed there. And so it's a race against time to get there before they do and to resurrect the bad guy that the player characters so carefully finally defeated several sessions ago and now there's a threat of him being shipped back into the zone of death and the zone of death becomes the zone of life if you're not careful and so that would be another uh, way to uh, bring that in and i guess it might also be fun to look at the idea of nobody called this the zone of death until that paper came out right and so you could discover another area where on paper the rule of law is suspended, but it you know hasn't been in a movie, in a TV show, in a novel yet. It isn't well known yet, and you can be tipped off to its existence, and so you can try and head there to exploit it, and perhaps even imprint which set of gods that particular uh, little chunk of land. What you know, you could be the ones who get to attune what that little border area is. Yeah, I, I strongly suspect that there are areas. In, I mean, because I remember recently, and I forget which president it was, but they made some giant stretch of the Pacific a national park or a national refuge. And it was stretching out of, I think, the Marshall Islands, whichever one of them is still a United States Commonwealth. And that this whole area be, became a big national, it was like a ecological reserve or something, but one assumes the same rules apply. So maybe there's some island there that's not part of the Marshall Islands. And so it's not in that territory. And it's not in any U.S. state and no one lives there. So, again, you could, you know, that's where you go to awaken, you know, Cthulhu or to do other sorts of reality twisting magic. Uh, I mentioned there's lots of these sort of little disputed areas around the world. Well, not lots, but a couple of few or disputed in the sense that no one wants them. I think we talked about the, the island of Ducey south of Pitcairn that America and Britain kept trying to give back to each other over and over in the 1900s. But you could, I, I'm sure you can find another couple of, of loophole districts, not just in American national parks, but once you start, you know, looking at other places, I'm sure that there are places in Britain that only the crown has jurisdiction, but through some sort of weird medieval loophole, you know, they can only enter it on Saturday or something. And so there's a, an, a, a free form magic possibility there, right? Right. And if the test is simply that the normal rules don't apply... I can think of a much bigger place with lots of people and places and stuff to do things where the normal rules don't apply. And that's Washington, D.C. Yeah. Because it is also, you know, a, a zone of liminal death, if, if nothing else. And so it could well be that that is the place in America where you go to do magic and look around. There's, oh, look, there's a giant Axis Mundi right there. So maybe, you know, uh, legislation is is uh, uh, magical and that explains a whole lot of uh, messing around and possibly why there are all of these sort of symbolic laws that get passed to no real effect. You know, maybe there's more to it than grandstanding. Maybe the uh, there's something esoteric going on there. So that gives you something other than, you know, a little scrap of wilderness in the middle of 
Idaho to, to go and, and do and, and go places. And, you know, once you're in power there, you know, because it is Congress that didn't close that loophole, right? Maybe you need to have the little chunk of Idaho still in the loophole zone in order for Washington, D.C. to be a big old loophole zone as well. Yeah, the, it's the radiator or the sink where all of the anarchy and chaos that would otherwise be bred by you doing all that magic in the District of Columbia. And you're like, oh, we'll just dump it in the West, which <laughs> that's never <laughs> happened in the history of America before. Yeah. I, I apologize to all American historians listening to this for my ridiculously uh, unprecedented suggestion that uh, there would be things you would just dump in the West if you couldn't handle them here. But uh, I think that might give you symbolic heft. And everyone's like, I don't know why all this magic keeps working in D.C. with, you know, the Freemasons and everyone else with the constant enforcement of order that is 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 constantly happening. And then you realize, oh, the zone of death is actually this increasingly important because it used to be the whole West was where it all bled off. But as we shrank it down, the the territorial part, the the ungoverned part, you know, got smaller and smaller and smaller. And now it's just the zone of death. And so you've got a, you know, a real a magical Superfund site out there by now. Right. And that's why you get, you know, shamans invading the Capitol building. Mm-hmm. Well, this is all starting to terrifyingly make sense. And yeah. uh, we know that when that starts to happen, we roll up our map here in the cartography hut and we check out and find out what other kind of huts might be in the second half of this exciting podcast. The Best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. We supply the setups, but you can ensure the payoff by becoming a heroic Patreon backer, very much like... Joss Borlase, Ludovic Chabant. Mark Kevin Hall. Michael Manival. And Monster Talk. The retinal scan you had to pass to get in. The gentle beeping on the digital keypad as you tap with, oh, look at you, someone else's fingerprints. How clever are you? The car that turns into a submarine and not just the regular kind that you drive off a pier. Welcome us into the Tradecraft Hut. And today we're talking about a global phenomenon of perhaps illegal, perhaps extra legal, perhaps spy-y, perhaps something else criminal. Chinese quote unquote police stations that exist in lots of countries around the world. But because the big blow up happened, in Canada, 
We're talking to Robin about Chinese police stations that are maybe grabbing people off the streets of Canada. How can you allow that, Robin? Well, this is an example of, I think, as we're about to find out, brilliant framing by an NGO that managed to get the kind of headlines uh, all around the world, but very much in Canada, that leads your head of state to immediately grab the phone and call the head of your intelligence service to say, say what now? So, <laughs> so this claim originates with a civil rights group called Safeguard Defenders. Uh, you will see them described in some articles as a Spanish group, but they're, they're incorporated in Madrid, but they're founded by a Swede and an American. So they're very international in their membership and their mandate is to follow state ordered disappearances of people in China. So they are exposing China's appalling human rights record. And they were sort of below the radar until they released this report that suddenly got a lot of attention. Because once you tell people all around the world that you've got Chinese police stations that you don't know about in your country and you're not China, it became a big deal. And big they deal. named these locations, in fact. And there's three of them in my neck of the woods in the GTA in the greater Toronto area. Now, like a lot of headlines, this one turns out to maybe have a little less than meets the eye because what they describe as being in the Toronto area anyway is a residential home, a convenience store, and a very anonymous quotidian exurban commercial building. And so the word police station is doing a lot of work on the headline grabbing front there because mm -hmm. it's, they, these don't turn out to be literal police stations where they, you know, drag people in and lock them in cells, but just locations associated with people who probably are unregistered elements of foreign governments on Canadian soil, or in the case of the other 47 places on the soil of other countries all around the world, which is illegal and something to be concerned about. But police station, on the other hand, though, the Dublin equivalent they actually posted a sign <laughs> that said the Fuzu Police Oversight Overseas Service Station on it. And that raised some eyebrows. And, and oddly enough, that sign came down really rapidly. Mm. The Chinese government is explaining this by saying, well, there's people who can't get back to China to renew their driver's licenses. So this is basically, it's not, according to them, not a Chinese police station. Even though we accidentally put the word police on one of our signs in, in Dublin, mm -hmm. this is just the overseas DMV. Yeah, it's it's like a consulate we didn't tell you about. Yes. Again, maybe you want to tell people about these. So the, the real accusation, of course, is that the people who are operating uh, using these places as bases are convincing people, persuading people who are otherwise unextraditable to return voluntarily to China after committing telecom fraud or involved in environmental damage or, uh, you know, other sort of white collarish sort of crimes. And of course, speaking of words that are doing a lot of work, persuading is doing a lot of work there because, of course, the uh, Chinese authorities are going to threaten your families if you don't come back. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese government says that the staffers in these places, like the office in Markham, where you, you go to get your driver's license renewed. They're not staffers, they're volunteers. Mm -hmm. Which is one of those things that, oh, you thought that was convincing? <laughs> you thought that was less creepy? Yeah, you thought that, yeah. 
So if you were a bored cop from Fuchow, you're actually less weird and radar honorable than if you're just someone who out of the goodness of their heart volunteers to help the Chinese government keep tabs on its overseas citizens. Yeah. Thanks, creepy and non-disclosure spy. Right. And also, it's not like this is the first time in the history of espionage that quasi covert or in one case, you know, the most famous version is a very overt case where uh, during the Belle Epoque period, the head, not just an outpost of the Akrana, but the headquarters of the czarist secret police was not in St. Petersburg, not in Moscow. It was in Paris, because if you're Pyotr Reshkovsky, the head of the Akrana, and you get to pick where your headquarters are. Yeah. <laughs> one Guess of the most what? beautiful examples of bureaucratic finesse ever. ever. He said, yeah, we're, we're going to put the Akrana in Paris. You know, and for one thing, I'm sure he argued that, you know, it wasn't just because the food was better there and the climate was much more salubrious, but that's where the Polish emigres were mm -hmm. uh, that they wanted to spy on and including Marie Curie's uh, sister and uh, brother-in-law. And Rostrovsky was considered by the Paris police a partner and he would get to share files back and forth with them. So this has happened a, a lot over uh, history. And of course, even well, I mean, I'm, I am sure to use a somewhat less tendentious example that um, there is a FBI office in London, and I'm sure that they are treated with every degree of respect and fraternal uh, welcome by not just the Metropolitan Police, but also by MI5 and whoever else, because right. they're allies in the same way that France and Russia were allies during the Belle Epoque. So, I mean, it's it's not as wild that the Okrana and the Surete are teaming up because the Surete is also not staffed by political radicals in this time, if anything, the opposite. <laughs> so it's, it's not quite as, as weird as it might seem if now you were reading, Oh, that's odd. The KGB's headquartered in Paris, or in this case, the FSB is headquartered in Paris and the French police are, are helping them out. Now, the question of course is if these places have been operating not just in driver's license renewal terms, but there are plenty of credible cases as there are uh, with, you know, Iranian agents pursuing emigres and pressuring overseas diaspora populations to act as uh, rat finks. Right. And Russia does it. Turkey does it. Right. Yeah. Lots of, I mean, yeah, that we had a, a case where the, the, the Turkish government literally beat up a guy in Washington, DC because he was a, an anti Erdoganist. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of hemming and hawing over what should have been, you don't get to beat people up in America. That's what our police do, you know, statement. But the same sort of thing goes on. And you kind of have to think that, you know, whether or not safeguard defenders are perhaps mischaracterizing the name of the location, the actual situation in which these Chinese networks are operating, maybe it needs a bit of a spotlight shown on it because... Maybe the cops are like, well, not really our problem. We've got other stuff to do. And yeah, yeah. So I would, I'm describing this as skillful framing, not dishonest framing. Right. Yeah. And so you have a, you know, a, a states, you know, state recognized state sort of situation where, well, we don't ideally want Turkish thugs beating up an anti Erdogan guy, but we are going to send SEAL Team Six on an uh, extraordinary rendition of a bunch of guys out of Turkey at some point, and it's nice to have a precedent set up. So in terms of uh, role-playing plotting, though, this gives mm -hmm. you the opportunity 
to whether it's China or some other repressive regime to have agents of an authoritarian government operating under, uh, you know, and even having an office that you can go to and break into, right? It's mm-hmm. easy yeah. enough to have a plot where the agents of, uh, you know, some adversary group come after you, but you equally well want to have an opportunity for the player characters to infiltrate something. And this seemingly bland office complex in Markham is one, you know, sneak into and find whatever it is in your plot line, whether it's the, you know, anti-vampire elixir or the magical uh, unguent or uh, just the files that you need to uh, uh, go after so that there's a way for the player characters to locate the enemy game master characters and, uh, you know, turn the tables and follow them as well. Yeah. That it could be, we're looking for a, a Chinese uh, vampire. We know that he's, we've, we've got the, you know, consulate taped. We know we can't get in there. What other Chinese influence spots are there? Oh, look at this. The safeguard defenders have pointed out that there's this, you know, uh, dry cleaners that they operate a quote unquote police station out of. Maybe the vampire can get in there. And sure enough, because you've thought of it, it turns out to be where you're going. And it gives you sort of that feel of verisimilitude, you know, rip from the headlines story action that just breaking into a random, you know, quote unquote safe house doesn't have the same jazz to it. And uh, on, on a broader level, that also opens up the idea that, you know, activist NGOs that are set up to oppose the policies of the bad guy regimes can be useful helpers in your yeah. campaign so that you can. Uh, you know, the, the report on the foreign police stations in the area you happen to be, it isn't coming out for another month, but you can go and actually talk to the researcher and, uh, you know, get the inside scoop on exactly where this place is. And then, of course, like any true aficionado of the Bourne movies, then the sniper rounds can start raining in on the cafe where you're meeting mm-hmm. and, and take out your informant. There used to be on the other, the flip side of that, there used to be a network, probably still is, of people that check tail numbers of secret CIA flights uh, because all the CIA flights have still got to be, you know, put on the FAA because you have to be able to land somewhere. And they just post it up and say, secret FAA, you know, secret CIA flight took off from, you know, Dubai heading north. Everyone keep your eyes open. And so that same sort of of network or, or NGO or anti surveillance surveillance can be a great element to drop in, as you say, to get their sniper round come up and for uh, talking out of turn, but also to be allies that maybe you want to keep alive and maybe you want to help out. And maybe you find yourself because the NGOs are not above using you guys to further their goals. Maybe they wind up being sending you into something where, well, we don't know exactly what's going on, but the explosion is going to get headlines and that's what we really want. And then you have to say, well, your heart was in the right place, but we were in the very wrong place. Thanks to you. Or on the other side of it, you know, the NGO researcher can be the person you are trying to uh, rescue when they go missing the, the NGO. They know what the government is up to uh, that they're uh, monitoring, but you know, they, they don't have kinetic capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, you've helped them in the past and now they're asking uh, for your help. And of course, you know, it's not just regular agents who've uh, kidnapped their researcher, but the, the vampires behind them. And of course, as we learned in the Cold War, probably a good two thirds of those NGOs are funded by the opposing state. So, you know, the anti-China NGO is getting money on the back end from America and the anti-America NGOs are getting money from Putin. And it's all, 
you know, a game of deniable spy versus deniable spy when you're hunting down a third set of deniable spies. And you, the poor guy who just wants to kill vampires, has to work it out in the midst of all of this network of allegiances and uh, fiscal connections. Yeah, because the CIA can't go to the press and say there's 50 Chinese <laughs> police stations around the world. Well, they could, but it's poor form. Mm-hmm. So you get your NGO to do it. Well, not to say that the, uh, of course, we're not accusing this particular real world NGO. I'm sure the good people of Safeguard Defenders have carefully scrutinized every nickel that came in. And I'm they sure, yes. only have the bad interests of China at heart. So good for them. And on that note, it's time for a, a much delayed segment. And it's delayed because, well, I'll, I'll explain while it's delayed on the other side of this exciting commercial. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. It's time once more to wander into the the hut on the borderland between all the other huts, the one where we're not quite sure what's going on until kind of a paranormal sense, but there's also a crackpotism about it. It might be a little occulty, a little conspiratorial. In this case, it's a whole lot cryptid, as we see when we look out the window. There's the alien big cat. He's uh, not just screaming on the moor, but uh, he's got some popcorn to listen in, as he always does when it's a cryptid segment. However, the Gray alien and the Nordic alien, they think they might have something to do with this too. So their ears are, well, the one that has ears are perking up uh, over their kombucha because we're in the Lipton hut. And as we discovered when uh, Ken Yu went to the Mothman Festival, oddly enough, we've done a John Keel segment, but we've never done a full on segment on Mothman, who is my favorite cryptid. And this may get into a definitional thing is the Mothman really an animal since he seems sort of humanoid more like, or sometimes he seems like an animal. But, you know, maybe it's his human-like quality. Well, if Bigfoot is a cryptid, and Bigfoot I think we have to agree he is, then Mothman go. can be a cryptid. I'm glad that we finally resolved that yeah. uh, and did it at the top. So, Ken, this is where we're finally going to full-on tell the story of our, our favorite cryptid, Mothman. Mothman. Well, the story of Mothman begins... In Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a lovely town, everyone should go, ideally maybe not during Mothman days, because then you'll be very crowded, but certainly visit at any time. November 15th, 1966, two couples are driving out, probably going drag racing, the couples of the Scarberries and the Mallets. They're in what's called the TNT area, which is where they used to build dynamite during World War II. It's sort of a disused industrial rundown area, certainly in the 60s. It's that the old power plant used to be out there. So it's the sort of place you go and you take your cars if you're a young couple interested in drag racing, which I have been assured by every report 
including the ones by the locals. That's what they were doing. There was no hanky-panky going on. They were just drag racing. So they're out there, and they see a mysterious flying being. looked like a winged man, according to the original things. Seven-foot tall, ten-foot wingspan. In the Scarberry's first reports, he's light gray, but he is usually seen as black. And he has red eyes that glow, and they are six inches apart, which is an odd detail, but it shows up a lot. And they sort of see him rising up in the middle of the road. They sort of go forward. He starts coming. They think, well, this is not what we signed up for. They take off down the road. Turns out Mothman can keep up with a 1957 Chevy Bel Air, which is the car in question, and straddles the car as they're driving. They pass the uh, power plant. He jumps from the car to the power plant, possibly chasing them. They drive into town and report it. Uh, his masculine, muscular leg dropped over one side of the car, according to the eyewitness. Darcy and I were both very taken by that detail. Yeah. The Mothman, as we pointed out previously, does not skip leg day. Just no, it does not. A flying creature, like, let's give Mothman props. A flying creature doesn't have to work out their legs, but Mothman goes the extra mile. Doesn't need leg day as much as the rest of us do. And and they show up, they report at the cops. The cops <laughs> they say, have you been drinking? <laughs> they say, no. They seem like good kids, so no one is assuming that they're out there helling around. And sure enough, it becomes a flap. And then that's when the stories start coming in that, oh, right, yeah, on November 12th, a bunch of gravediggers in Clendenin, West Virginia, saw a figure leaping between trees that might have been Mothman. And also, a guy who uh, lived in uh, Salem, West Virginia, had weird things happen to his TV and his dog Bandit, a German shepherd, disappeared and there was red glowing eyes in the woods when Bandit disappeared, and maybe that was Mothman. And then you also have, of course, the flap of people who see Mothman all over the area. There are eight sightings in uh, rapid succession, uh, including two firemen who are fairly reliable witnesses. Keel, by the time he gets around to writing Mothman prophecies, documents 26 right. Mothman and that's, sightings. Uh, John A. Keel, the noted yes. elliptonic writer. Longtime friend of the show. Air, yeah, the sort of heir to Charles Fort and perhaps the most entertaining uh, elliptonist of his generation. Yes. Uh, John Keel and his publisher, Gray Barker, come to investigate, and Barker begins immediately hoaxing, because that's what Gray Barker does. And Keel says, you know, quit it, man, you're scaring the rubes. And so they part company over the Mothman investigation. But Gray Barker's signature phenomenon, the men in black, show up and begin to harass uh, area witnesses, including uh, the Athens Messenger columnist, who is out of a bureau in Point Pleasant, named Mary Heyer, and she is a beloved local columnist who takes up the Mothman story as a thing that sort of, you know, spices up the column, makes it uh, interesting and fun, and so she becomes sort of John Keel's doorway to the population of Point Pleasant and lets him talk to people uh, she as his main contact. Right. And, and so it's the appearance of the men in black in this story that A, gives it the UFO angle, mm-hmm. and B, gets us into this whole area of Keel as an experience, because obviously he's an anti-hoaxer, mm-hmm. and the men in black do seem to be something that were initially a hoax, but then started to manifest. So mm-hmm. th- this is where we go from the realm of, you know, cryptid, you know, an outlandish uh, sort of alien-looking cryptid, but a cryptid nonetheless, into 
sort of a darker area of kind of uh, horror and real life weird tale. Yeah. And Keel initially begins to assemble other sightings, UFOs. There is a UFO encounter in on the highway between Mineral Wells, West Virginia and somewhere in Ohio, where a fellow named Woodrow Woody Derenberger has a close encounter. He sees a tubular UFO like a lantern, he describes it. And he meets a alien who telepathically tells him his name is Indrid and uh, is later on identified as Indrid Cold. Keel conflates this report with a different report in New Jersey of an alien who smiles, who looks like a human, but he's smiling all the time. And because he's smiling when he talks to you, it's like he's ventriloquizing, but it's actually telepathy. And so Keel sort of says, could Indrid have been this smiler? And that later gets futzed into Indrid was smiling when he talked to Woody Durenberger, which is something that because Woody Durenberger is a big old confabulator, he starts adding that to his story later on. It doesn't look like it happened initially, but again, uh, UFOs mess with your memory. This is known. So who can say, but Keel, as he spends more time in Point Pleasant, also begins to, shall we say, confabulate, shall we say, experience. Something happens. His initial reports are relatively low-key, but by the time he reflects on them in his book, The Mothman Prophecies, in 1975, it has become a full-blown persecution narrative. And the the novel is, as I've said many times, or the novel, the, the book is like the in-cold-blood of UFOs. It's a non-fiction, but presented strongly fictionally with a strong fictional quality. It's the best horror novel of 1975. Salem's Lot isn't even in it. I very much recommend reading it because it is absolutely, I think, a genuine psychological document of what it feels like to be an experiencer. And it's uh, Keel, who is also a indefatigable, not even to say jackdaw-like researcher, very close to my heart in that level as well. So the Indrid Cold situation sort of persecutes John Keel. It, it battens onto him as a, as a querent. More UFO sightings happen, more Mothman sightings. There is a big panic in town. Uh, again, as the tour guide told me, she was a little girl during the town. Uh, her grade school shut down recess. People weren't allowed out. There was a lot of, you know, low-key panic and worry about it. And then in December of 1967, on December 15th, the Silver Bridge from Point Pleasant to Gallipolis, I believe, Ohio, collapsed, and it killed 46 people driving back and forth, cars full of Christmas presents. There was a perhaps prophetic dream that was, you know, adduced later, uh, that, that Keel adduces in the book. Um, but the notion is that the Mothman is either building up psychic energy to cause the collapse, or in the sort of modern-day uh, domesticated Mothman, he was trying to warn us of the collapse, and that's why there's reports, uh, none of them contemporaneous, of the Mothman appearing at Chernobyl, for example, or Fukushima. And he's like, oh, don't, uh, don't do this, it'll be awful. And then we all ignore Mothman and look what happens. Yeah, well, he, he could be clearer, frankly. Yeah, right, frankly. Yeah, just appearing is, you gotta put something down there. Put it on Twitter, man. Yeah, exactly. And in Chicago, we had a number of sightings of a being that was leaping and flying between buildings. They began in 2011. They peaked in 2017, was known as the Chicago Mothman. But every time you looked at the actual reports, 
it was a more bat-like figure than it, it was. It sounded a more like Christian figure. Bale. It, it was. It was just voice. Batman. Batman is, that's not a cryptid. Batman lives in Chicago. We have documentary evidence of this. So that is basically where Mothman lies. Most Mothman sightings are now mythologically inserted in the way that you'd say, oh, uh, Athena appeared to me and told me this. Uh, we should have listened to Athena. And he does not seem to be an active cryptid. Every now and again, you get someone who, who claims to have seen him, but I think it's, you know, kids psyching themselves up in a haunted house type energy. Even at the time, Fun Ruiners suggested that what you had was sandhill cranes that had gone out of their migration area. And known for their muscular legs. Known for their muscular legs and their big staring eyes. I don't see it myself, but there we are. That would explain why people not familiar uh, who, were, who knew local wildlife would still be wigged out by seeing the sandhill crane because they are kind of tall and weird looking. That's that part is true. Another skeptic has suggested the barred owl, which again, owls will mess you up. I'm not saying owls aren't creepy, but I'm saying if you live in West Virginia, you've seen owls, you know, the difference between owl and mothman. It, this is like the, the, the Scottish fisherman who's like, Oh, he thought that was a mermaid. It's like the Scottish fisherman has seen that fish. <laughs> He's not going to suddenly decide it's a mermaid. Yes, he's that's, that's a lazy veil out for sure. Something bigger going on in his life, his personal life. And so the, the Mothman sort of ends there as this sort of perfect narrative. Uh, again, the narrative having been massaged consciously or unconsciously by John Keel. But it is, as you say, our favorite cryptid. And I think a lot of that is because of that literary quality that it has and because it draws in so many things and because there is no actually satisfactory explanation. And that's the thing that the Mothman tour guide came back to when we would say, do you believe in Mothman? And she says, well, I don't think that people stick to the same story for 50 years without something having actually happened. But she's, you know, right out there. She says, I've never seen Mothman. I was too little at the time. I wouldn't have been allowed to see Mothman even, uh, but I'll tell you, we weren't allowed to play with the Derenbergers because their dad was a weirdo. And that seems like a pretty good uh, summation of the case as far as I'm concerned. So it definitely seems like some sort of intrusion from another reality, right? Uh -huh. And once, you know, there's a breakthrough and an inbreak of one weird entity, if you start looking around for other weird things going on anywhere, you're going to find them mm -hmm. and you can sort of uh, connect all of the dots. And that's how you get, uh, men in black showing up and, you know, any, anything that happens. And the, the bridge collapse provides the sort of narrative conclusion that allows everybody to go, oh, Mothman's gone. That was all about that somehow. Uh, and I think that's also part of the, you know, not only, you know, humanoid moth, but the fact that it was a contained story in a particular place that has an arc and has this sort of creepy undertone, the idea that you know, its appearance, you know, skews a lot of realities and uh, uh, brings uh, not just the hoaxers, but the experiencers uh, out of the woodwork. And I think that's something that you could use. I think Mothman himself has become a little cutified over the years. But if yeah, he's uh, just like the fairies did in Victorian times or yeah. even with Shakespeare, we're domesticating a thing we were genuinely scared by. Yeah. So if you're doing a scenario where, you know, another, you know, alien being sort of briefly manifests in our world and then sets off a whole other chain of events. And by that time, it's gone back beyond the veil, right? You don't fight it mm -hmm. at the end, but you have to cope with, you know, the ambient reality shattering effect that it had, which suggests that it's, you know, this is, uh, this is normal now territory, right? Mm -hmm. This is uh, definitely a real world case of reality horror. Definitely the incursion as the horror. 
and then the after effects, which are everything from, you know, the genuine fright that uh, little girls uh, in Point Pleasant in 1966 felt down to the traumatic associations around the bridge, which have been tied to Mothman fairly or unfairly down to the simultaneous joy of the Mothman festival and the distastefulness of Gray Barker running around immediately trying to exploit this genuine bad situation to sell more terrible books. So it's a, it, it, it's the whole knot of uh, anthropology and sociology. And I will say that when I introduced the Mothman into my fall of Delta green game, the immediate response was the sort of cutified, oh, great, he's the hottest cryptid. We all want to have sex with Mothman moment. But as I built and and layered in and, and borrowed from the actual, you know, events, it became very creepy and very scary. So you can go back down from the, the cutified or domesticated Mothman into the unpleasant, unsettling visitation, and it still works. It's still got the juice. You can do the same thing with fairies if you wanted to, certainly. But uh, you're in America. Why not do it with Mothman? Right. And and as we always uh, say when Mothman comes up, the film Mothman Prophecies is remarkably effective. It's surprisingly good. That undercurrent of yeah. uh, creeping reality horror. Uh, well, on that note, now that we've finally given Mothman uh, his due, we can exit this podcast for another week. But I bet we'll enter another one, I don't know, seven days from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from being murdered in Idaho by joining such impaneled backers as... Neil Dalton. Nathan Merritt. Urs Blumentritt. Jason Fritz. And Neil Kaplan. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest horrific design. This could have been an email. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. 